Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. I'm your host Sean Malloy and on today's special interview episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with producer Benjamin Sachs. But before we get to the conversation, I wanted to remind you all to please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, especially those five-star reviews. Those always help. Uh, Also, please be sure to check out the Facebook page for the show, I Must Break This Podcast. Here you can stay up to date on the show the career of Mr. Dolph Lundgren, and other news regarding action cinema in general. So if you're not already following the page, please feel free to like it, share it, and continue being a fan and helping spread the word. Uh, Lastly, if you'd like to get in contact with me with ideas, suggestions, or thoughts on the show in general, you can take a look at the official webpage for the show, imustbreakthispodcast.wordpress.com. Now, on to today's episode. Uh, Recently, I had the privilege of speaking with producer Benjamin Sachs. Sachs has a lengthy producing resume, with almost 50 credits in the world of independent action cinema. Ben Sachs has produced films for the likes of Steven Seagal, Val Kilmer, Jason Patrick, and many more through his company Hollywood Media Bridge. He's also worked with Dolph Lundgren on a few films. In fact, Ben Sachs' first film was actually as a production assistant on the 1999 flick Stormcatcher. Fifteen years later, Sachs oversaw the executive producing duties on three more Lundgren flicks, Ambushed, Puncture Wounds, and Altitude. In this discussion, Ben Sachs was gracious enough to tell us his story, including how he went from the Marine Corps to heading up his own production company. He also took me through his duties as an executive producer and how he goes about in financing, overseeing, and making sure that these independent action films look much bigger than their budgets typically allow. And Sachs also managed to give me quite a few stories on working with the enigmatic personality that is Steven Seagal. Uh, Ben Sachs was a great guy to talk to, uh, quite the open book, we'll say, and uh, no question was off limits to him. So it was an absolute pleasure and privilege being able to uh, get to speak with him and have him on the show. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with producer Benjamin Sachs on I Must Break This Podcast. Uh, well, yeah, I, I certainly I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to chat with me today. And I'll, of course, be respectful of your time and your day. But, um, yeah, you've, you've worked on uh, quite a few films that, uh, that I've been a fan of and that I've been watching for years. So getting to, uh, getting to speak to one of the brains behind a lot of these projects is, uh, is a real treat. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know what brains I really do have, but um, I'm, I'm happy to share as many stories as I can share. And uh, 
I figured I, I checked out your podcast. I figured we're not talking about a specific Dolph Lundgren movie today, so I haven't boned up on anything recently. But, uh, you know, um, the, the second film I ever worked on was a Dolph Lundgren film. Now, which film was this? That was uh, Stormcatcher. I was a PA. Oh, okay. Yeah, Stormcatcher is one that uh, that I, I think that's uh, you know it was a direct-to-video film, sure, but it, it certainly had a um, a level of uh, production value and polish to it, and I think a lot of that is due to uh, Anthony Hickox. But um, but yeah, Stormcatcher I think is a fun <laughs> yeah. one. I have some stories about Anthony Hickox. I'm not sure I can tell either. <laughs> oh no, really? Because well, what's weird, what I've gathered, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but what I've gathered with uh, Stormcatcher is, you know, Anthony Hickox was always kind of like a horror guy. I mean, he, that was like the genre that he was familiar with and comfortable with. And when he did Stormcatcher, he was doing just these kind of action films purely for the paycheck and just to kind of get by. So he did two Dolph films and then he did a Steve the Golf film. And I just, listening to his commentaries, I get the vibe that he was just not a fan of that period at all. No, and and I mean, if you if you look at the uniforms, um, I came out of the Marine Corps, so I was probably about two or three months out of the Marine Corps when I did that film. And if you look at the uniforms, they're just um, they're completely jacked up. And I remember asking the military advisor, I'm like, dude, what's the story with this? How can you call yourself a military advisor? He's like, hey man, when the director wants his color palette, the director gets his color palette. I'm like, oh, okay, that's how it is in Hollywood. But yeah. So I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know how much liberty you're able to divulge, but, uh, yeah, working on a, a project um, like Stormcatcher, especially being one of your very first uh, films in the world of Hollywood, what was that entire production like? Uh, man, I mean, it was interesting. It's like the, 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 the very first pr- film I went on, I was unpaid. And I came on to this one. I was making eighty seven fifty a day. And we can talk about all this. I don't think there's really anything on – I don't think there's anything really uh, about my time at Stormcatcher – but I can't talk about. I mean, uh, I think did I get fired off that one? I might have gotten fired off that show. Um, quite frankly, it was the because uh, I got into it with the second AD. But I mean, um, Dolph was Dolph was so cool because one day he saw me with my uh, I had a, a USMC ball cap on. He's like, "Hey, so can I talk to you about military protocol?" I'm like, uh, "Am I allowed to talk to you?" Because <laughs> I was such a newbie, I didn't know. Yeah, right. And so we had a nice chat, and and he asked me some questions about military protocol. And, and, I mean, the guy actually did his research. He tried to do his research, even when the director was not that interested in getting it right. He wanted to get it right um, the best he could. And I worked with him as a production coordinator um, later again on Agent Red. Um, oh, boy. I actually, so <laughs> uh, Damian Lee. Yeah, that film was a very interesting one, and um, but I got to know him a little bit better on that one, and you know we had a nice chat, and I, I, think, I, t- I think I took him to the airport uh, when it was done in a Ford Crown Victoria of all things. But yeah, uh, I've got some stories with him. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's go back a bit, if that's okay. I mean, yeah. uh, t- t- tell me your story, and now it's my understanding you served in the Marine Corps before stepping in the world of, uh, of producing. Is that right? That's correct. So first of all, thank you for your service. Uh, thank you. So, I, I mean, that, that's a really cool uh, path that you took. How did, you know, serving in the Marine Corps take you into producing action movies? Well, I, I entered the Marine Corps late in life. Um, I grew up in the Los Angeles area. In fact, I grew up in um, the Santa Monica, Malibu area for the most part. 
I went to Santa Monica High School. And so I was around film my whole life. And um, um, after college, I bounced around. I thought I would be in politics, and then I didn't like that, and I wanted to be in sales, and I didn't like that. And, and um, I had a, a period where I had a couple of businesses falter, and I declared bankruptcy, and like, well, I'm 26 years old. What, what, what next? And I sat down. I wrote a list of all the things that everyone wanted to do in life. You know, when you're a kid, you go, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a, a this or a that or whatever the case may be. And, and I worked down that list. And on that list was surf. And so I started looking at the different branches and said, well, you know, I'm 26. Or, you know, uh, if, I, if, I want to be, if I want to be in the military, I want to be in the toughest military. I want to be the hardcore. I want to be, I want to be all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, let's go be a Marine. And I had a college degree, but I'm like, no, I want to go enlisted. I want to be hardcore. <laughs> Um, just goes to show that men in their mid-20s still don't know anything about life. Uh, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps at 26, and I got injured um, uh, while well, I was stationed abroad and um, spent uh, a little less than a year in, in, uh, in uh, rehab, having multiple surgeries, and I was then no longer deployable. So the Marine Corps... Uh, thanked me for my time, and they sent me on my way. So I broke out the list. I said, well, what do you want to do now? I go, well, you know, I always wanted to work in film. Um, I did a lot of theater and things like that in, in college, and um, I said, well, I, I want to I do film. But I, to be honest with you, I wasn't courageous enough to be an actor. <laughs> um, I, I feel that uh, anybody who who really wants to be an actor and try and survive in Hollywood has to have uh, a certain level of courage or a certain level of uh, craziness to, to even embark on that because it's just, it's such a hard road. Um, not knowing that pretty much any road in Hollywood is a hard road. There's, there's, there are no easy paths, but uh, I said, well, I'm going to be a producer, not even knowing what that really meant. So I'm going to be a producer. So I got out of the Marine Corps and um, I got back to L.A., and uh, I was crashing, was crashing at my mom's place. I'm 28 years old now, crashing at my mom's place, and, and finally got a, a, a really crappy apartment in Brentwood, which is funny to say because Brentwood's a very high-dollar area in Los Angeles, but this was like the crappiest apartment there. I was paying 300 a month for my room, which was perfect. Right, so I could work odd jobs and whatnot, and still make the rent. And and, um, and I just I just kept looking through the Hollywood Reporter and sending faxes of my resume into production after production after production. And I had several friends that were working in the business at the time, and I called them up, and they were like, "Yeah, I really can't help you much." I'm like, oh, uh, okay, because they were all they were all you know, a couple years into their career, fighting for their career. They they were not in a real position, and I understand that now. It's, you know, so um, I made it up to my first film. And it was called The Learning Curve. Um, and uh, it was this low-budget film, and I started working. I started working for free. About a week and a half or two weeks in, they asked me if I would stay on full-time if they paid me something. I said, well, you know, shoot, you know, um, like maybe if you could just pay me 50 bucks a week so I'd cover my gas because they were feeding me. I said, sure, why not? And they said, well, we don't know about that. We'll try. So 50 bucks a week, I got paid. 
And um, uh, come to think of it, I think Stormcatcher was my third film. So I went from the learning curve um, to a Jim Wynorski film. And the name escapes me at the moment. And then I went to Stormcatcher. Um, and I just remember my, my second day on set, I was in Woodland Hills, and it was about, about 112, 113. It was a hot, hot day. And I'm standing there at parade rest because I'm still just a little tweaked and a little locked on from the Marine Corps. And I'm waiting for my next order. And uh, I'm standing right by craft service. My job at that moment was to tell people at craft service to be quiet when they're willing because they could be heard. And I was just waiting. And I could hear these people, and they were literally lying grass next to craft service. Like, oh, it's so hot. It's so hot. And I'm thinking to myself two things. I'm thinking to myself, one, they must be important people because only important people can lie around and do nothing. Two, <laughs> if this is the hard part, this, this is nothing because, you know, this is 113 degrees and, you know, I've been, I've been in the Marine Corps and I've, I've humped, you know, 20 miles with 120 pounds on my back and this ain't, this ain't shit. So that was like my first foray into, well, this is, this is filmmaking. I can do this. That's kind of the attitude that I took on from that point on. And the learning curve was amazing because I got to be a PA. I got to be sound utility. I got to work as a grip. I got to work in the art department. I got to work in transportation. And the show was not finished and it kept running out of money. So it got progressively smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where I was driving a van with the camera equipment, the craft service, and <laughs> and everything else. So I was it. I was like the utility, everything, um, except for the camera team. And um, I was working like 18, 19-hour days. It was crazy. Uh, that was my first experience. And then I went on to my next movie, uh, which is the Winorski movie, which was uh, actually a very fun experience. I think uh, I think that was the one with James Coburn, and I was so stoked to meet James Coburn. Um and he got, you know, he, he, was, he was just a great talker. He was like telling me all kinds of stories and everything. And then, um, and then I got put on to Stormcatcher. And Stormcatcher was a fairly big film uh, compared to what I'd done before. Um, and then that's when I met Dolph. And he was just cool. You know, he was really cool to everybody. Uh, and, and you could tell he really cared. And he really went to, he wanted to get it right, regardless of whether the director really cared if he got it right or not. Well, yeah, I mean, because looking at your resume, I mean, most of your filmography falls within the uh, the action genre. I think it's fair to say, have you always been a big fan of action movies? Is this a genre that you have always gravitated to? You know, it's funny because back in the day, the films that I loved the most were, were, were going to the video store pre-Blockbuster and going and looking, you know, up and going, okay, American uh, American Ninja and American Ninja 2, and, you know, the Michael Dudikoff, and the, the Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Bloodsport, and, you know, so action was always a big thing. Loved all of those old movies. I mean, my friends and I just, we just chewed them up. And we'd get so excited when we'd see, like, on the marquee inside the video store, coming soon, you know, American Ninja 2, we're like, oh, my God, it's American Ninja 2, you're kidding me. <laughs> You look back at some of these movies, and they're they're not the greatest, but they, you know we loved them. I mean, you know, I just rewatched Commando, um, which is one of my favorites, which I had not seen in ages, and I mean, I still love that movie. And movies like Remo Williams and and 
big trouble in little China. And uh, even, even you know, um, Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines were running scared. These were all these action movies of the period that just were so much fun to watch. And so, yeah, those were my favorites. Those and sports movies. I love sports movies. But I literally fell into this, into the genre when I got involved. I just, I literally fell into it. It's what I started doing. And, and um, you know, happy accident, I guess you could say. Well, I mean, there seems to be a, uh, you know, there seems to be a ton of misconceptions uh, regarding the role of a producer. Yet, I mean, arguably, I, I think the, the producer is so integral to any production. So if you could, please, if you don't mind, take me through the role of a producer and what is it that you do on each of these films? Okay, so that's a really great question. Um, you know, when you see 15 producers on a film, you never know who really was the one or two pe- you know, people who did the work. So I got my start doing, uh, I went from PA to production coordinator, production coordinator AD, AD, production manager, production manager, line producer, line producer. All of a sudden, I was now executive producing and producing. What does it mean? Well, when you look at a film and you see all these titles, a lot of them don't mean anything, honestly. A lot of them are people who were one very small piece of the puzzle, someone who is related to somebody. So when you look at the title, it doesn't necessarily mean that this person did the work. The title suggests they did. Sometimes, you know, you, you see someone who gets a, these great titles and, and they never even stepped foot on set. But they were able to introduce someone to a key component of the financing. But what I did and what I've been doing, um, uh, going from line producer to producer, is I would, I would literally be given a script and said, how much can we do this for? And I would sit there and I, and I would, you know, pen out uh, exactly what I thought the budget would be. Um, and uh, then I would add, you know, the, the cast and the producer fees and all the other things that, that are involved with it. Um, you know, I'd check out the union fringes and whatnot, and then I'd submit that. And, of course, nine times out of ten, they'd go, okay, that's great. What can you really do it for? <laughs> and, and so I'd go back, and I'd cut things down. I'd maybe cut things by about 5 or 10%. And then they'd come back and go, okay, well, the reality is that's a great budget, but we don't have $5 million. We only have $2.5 million. Can you make it for that? <laughs> and I'm like, why don't you just start with that? But what I, I would do is I would budget. And then when we got to the point where the budget was approved and cast was approved, in some cases, I would help find the director. In some cases, the director was given to me. In some cases, I was asked to come up with a concept and I would hire a writer. In some cases, I was just given a script and told to make it. Um, but in all the cases, I was told how, where, and you know how much can we get this done for. So if it was going to be done in New Mexico, if it was going to be done in Romania, if it was going to be done in, in uh, Los Angeles, um, I would make that plan. And then I would uh, sit down, I would hire the crew, I'd work with the director, I'd work with all the key personnel, I'd work with other producers in figuring out how to get things done. Because when you're told uh, to make a movie, let's say, for example, you come up with a budget and the budget is $10 million dollars. And they turn around, you know, and when I say they, it's either other producers or buyers or distributors that are asking for this. They'll turn around and say, well, you've only got five to play with. Uh, You can make any movie for any price. It just depends on how attached you are to the script. So are you going to 
Are you going to make the script? Or are you going to make the budget? Which direction are you going to go in? Um, and if you make the budget, then you have to go through the script and say, okay, well, you know, this sequence here that says, you know, you got five helicopters coming in at, at high speed at, at low altitude. Hmm. Well, maybe it's not five helicopters. Maybe it's one helicopter. Or maybe we get rid of the helicopters and we use some stock footage, which is really interesting because some of the early movies I paid on, the uh, this was, uh, gosh, it was like Phoenician and this is the, uh, you know, Andrew Stevens' early days of my career. You know, like have a bunch of stock footage. You're like, okay, well, we have a bunch of stock footage from a sinking ship. Let's go make a movie about a sinking, a sinking ship. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what they did. Kind of working you know, backwards. They, right. Everything was kind of, you know, backing into it. Um, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I, I learned a lot about that type of, type of stuff. But when I got to the point where I was doing my own budget, I would try to do everything as authentic as I could. And then, and then turn around and say to the director, well, that's great. I'm glad you have this vision. But that's, uh, uh, we're not doing that kind of movie, so what can we do in its place? And, and so, you, you know, I would try to do my best to help the director, the writer, keep their vision alive. Um, and at the same time, make the, the, the financiers happy with uh, how much we were spending. And that's what I did. I was always kind of that buffer between, you know, the creative and the financial. And, um, you know, the financial thought that I was always, you know, uh, giving too much to creative and the creative always thought that I was giving too much to financial. So I was pretty much the most hated person on set. There you go. Well, it, you know, it, it's really interesting because it, it seems like, you know, from what I've gathered, especially um, with these direct-to-video, the, you know, these, these independent uh, action films that go direct-to-video, you know, it's really wild because 15, 20 years ago, a lot of these films were being made, it seems like with pretty hefty budgets, you know, going towards $20 million. And nowadays, the budgets seem to have shrunk you know, exponentially. I mean, you, you said it already. You have many films that are getting made for, you know, $5 million, sometimes even less. And, it, it, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, but it seems like nowadays, especially in the current uh, cinematic market, especially with these independent productions, it seems like the big goal is to get your budget back and then a little something extra. I mean, is this an accurate way of kind of describing the sales process is the fact that, okay, if you get your budget back, then the film is a success or, or no? Yes. I mean, that's an emphatic yes. What you have to look at is that there are different layers to it all. So um, let's say that, um, let's say that uh, actor, producer, or director, producer, somebody comes up and says, I want to make my film, and I've already got, you know, I've already got uh, Dolph Lundgren attached. So they're, they're going to go to someone like my partner, Phil Goldfine, who I've worked with for a long time. Um, he, someone like him will go around and say, well, that's worth – He'll call up, you know, a foreign sales, and he'll call up domestic and say, okay, what are the numbers? He'll come back to me and say, well, that's worth, it's worth 1.5 million. So then you go back to the producers and go, okay, well, it's worth 1.5 million. You're you're really not going to see a dime out of it other than that 1.5 million. So any movie that you make on the movie, on the production, that's what you're going to get for it. That kind of turns into just a kind of contract job, right? Um, because at the end of the day, who really makes the money on these movies are the distributors. Distributors have, so they tell you 1.5, you're going to go ahead and make that movie for 1.2, and between the other producers involved, you're going to hold back maybe, you know, a couple hundred thousand for yourself. Um, These are all just 
broad numbers, just nothing accurate to date. So, I mean, it depends on who the producer is. Some producers will try and take 40% of the budget, and some producers will take 5% of the budget to pay themselves. But uh, it's the distributors. And so they have, they have so many costs involved that they get to recoup everything before anything goes into what's called the collection account. And the collection account distributes any profits above and beyond, you know, uh, above and beyond the, the, the financing to everybody else. And don't forget, you know, the Screen Actors Guild and the DGA and the WGA and everybody else gets their cut before anybody else does. So they take their cut, the distributors take their cut, and then after a certain time, the people who actually put the film together might get something in return. So now, okay, so this is really interesting because, I mean, I, I imagine every production, you know, is, is, a, is a different animal and a different breed because, I mean, you and I have spoken about altitude, which I have a couple questions about. But I'm curious, once the cameras start rolling and, okay, the director and the actors and everyone has been hired, how involved are you in the process at this point forward? At this point, do you sit back and let the, the director, you know, run the show and, and shoot his movie or – are you pretty pretty involved all the way to the very end to the to the post production phase? So it, it goes on a case by case basis. If if I am directly involved in the production and if I'm the one that did the budget and if I'm the one that's you know shepherding through all the way through, I'll sit with the director and I mean while I'll let the director do just about whatever they want to do, I keep a close eye on the director and make sure that they're not making a different movie, making sure that that that, that the pages are running through. So you know I. I what I like to do is I like the director do what the director does, but I'll check in with the first AD, I'll check in with the script super, and I'll kind of I'll stay on the periphery, just making sure things are getting done. And I'll keep an eye on the time to make sure that we were gonna we're not gonna go over and you know and, and making sure that you know there's they're not gonna take twenty takes of someone you know uh, picking up a toy and putting it down in a box for an insert shot, you know, spending like two hours on that, right? That would be ridiculous. But um, some movies. Uh, I'm brought on, and I'm brought on just to supervise the supervisors. So in, in that particular case, I'm, I won't be on set, and I will have someone calling me saying, well, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then I'll give them instructions on what I want to have happen. But, I, but anything that I do personally, I really like to work hand-in-hand with the director um, to get them what they want. I really, really do want them to have their vision on the screen um, as much as possible. Because otherwise, you know, why let the director direct, you know, if you're not going to let them have their style and have their their input? Um, I do know producers that will sit next to the director the entire production and question each camera move or question each setup. And it's like, come on, people, let, 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 the, let them do their work. Let them do what you hire them to do. You're, you're, you're paying them a really fantastic amount of money let them do the job but some producers are very hands-on and they'll question everything i'm not that guy i'm i'm a pretty hands-off guy unless something is going wrong in which case i'll step in well obviously i mean you have to handle a lot of the uh, the problems that will arise on set um should should any difficulties arise on set and you and i have uh discussed uh, a little bit uh, regarding the film Altitude. And recently, I actually, I also spoke with the director on Altitude, uh, Alex Merkin. It sounds like this production had a few difficulties in the, uh, in the filming of it, but at least, you know, I got to say, at least in the end, you guys got a completed film that I think looks pretty good. 
when, and, and especially when you find out exactly how much was spent, and I'm not I'm not at liberty to say exactly how much was spent, but when you find out exactly how much was spent, I'm amazed at what they got. But I'll tell you right off the bat when this picture when this picture first came to me, and they first pitched the idea, and I read the script and I heard the budget, my response was no, I I don't want to be involved with this project because to me the number that they told me they could do it for. And what I felt that it could be done for were, were vastly different. And I didn't want our company to be liable for, you know, these massive overages. At the end of the day, I was uh, overridden, and we, we, we got involved with these guys. And to their credit, they, they did keep it down. But it still, it still went over budget in post uncomfortably for, for me. And the problems on set were just numerous i i was not on set but i i i was given i got phone calls almost daily saying so and so is not doing this and so and so is not doing that and you know the director was complaining about the producer the producers complaining about the director and there was just there was a lot of mishigas going on on the set and, and there was really wasn't much i could do about it and they got it done well i mean I, i'm curious do you i mean is it fair to say i mean it sounds like most of these projects come to you do you actively seek out any particular projects or is it a combination of the two? It's a combination of the two. Um, in my career, I haven't really, I really haven't championed any, any, uh, too many projects. Um, I'm working on a couple right now. Actually, uh, our good friend, Brian Coyne, who, who, <laughs> who introduced us, uh, he's got, he's got a couple of scripts that are just fantastic that I really, really want to do. And, uh, it's taken several years, and and we've 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 you know thrown them at the wall at a lot of places, and we've had a lot of interest, and just never been able to get it past the interest point. But there are a couple of those that I really 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 like to get done. I think he's just a, uh, I just love his writing, and I think he's going to do a bank job directing them you know, in that same kind of 80s action style that uh, I found with growing up. Maybe just uh, maybe just hopefully they're not set on a plane, and maybe you guys can avoid a lot of problems that way, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the funny thing about altitude is when I first read the script, um, my first question was, "I'm like, um, how? how? You know, because it's a, it's an international flight, right?" And um, my first question was like, "Well, they've got all this stuff going on underneath the plane and above the, uh, you know, in the belly of the plane, on top of the plane, the belly of the plane." And I said, well, where are you shooting this? And um, one of the producers says to me, oh, we, we, we've got this company, and they're going to give us a, a 727 set to work off of. Like, there's, you know, and I know this is Hollywood. I know you got to, like, kind of stretch the belief a little bit here and there. But in the, in, the, in the original script, they had people crawling down one aisle as other people were coming up another aisle, Right. Um, and trying to hide from each other, and they had people crawling on the plane. Well, on 727, there's no access from the from the from the from the cabin deck down to the lower deck. That's easily accessible. So when you get into that, you have to be into your wide body planes and and you know your your 747s and your you know the, the big planes, right? And so that was my I was like, oh god, I mean, how are you going to make it? How are you going to make these scenes happen? We've got so much going on up, down, in, out, side to side on a plane that's basically a domestic commuter plane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, 
I was really stuck on that. I was really, really, really stuck on that. I think they did a good job at the same time. I was like, it's just like in military movies. When I watch military movies, I see them just destroy military protocol. I know it's Hollywood. And I know most people are not going to capture that. But I do know that some will, and it just kind of bothers me that people are going to walk out and go, like, well, that was crap because they didn't do this, this, and this, and this. But I know you got to make it to the masses. I know you got to pander to the masses. Um, and it's that, that 3 to 5%, you're just going to have to put up with, you know, you know, bomb your film on some sort of social media site because you didn't follow protocol, whether it be on an airline or military or whatever the case may be first. But yeah, that, 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 that's always bothered me. I guess it still will bother me till till the till my last my last film. I, I I do like to get things right, but it doesn't all doesn't often work out that way. Well, you have produced a ton of projects with uh with Steven Seagal. I mean, is, is it fair to call it a partnership that you and Seagal have established at this point? Well, uh, it's a bit murky. I don't know that you say it was partnership. I'm, I mean. He would definitely never call it a partnership. Um, but uh, uh, so you go back to you go back to um, uh, my first project with Seagal was and this is the one Richard Crudo directed. It was the it was like Vampire Zombies or something like that. Uh, we shot in Romania, and uh, um, that was my first. My first picture was Seagal, and I was basically just a line producer on that show. Um, although I think I got an EP credit, but I was just a line producer on that show. I remember meeting Seagal for the first time, and, and, and Seagal really thought that these were his shows, even though there was a whole team of people that were working around him that were actually making it all happen. Um, but I remember the first time I met him, and um, uh, one of his people introduced me, and, and he said, Sir, sir, this is Benjamin Sachs, he's the line producer. And he looks at me, he's like, Royal British? And I'm looking at him like and I looked at him with, you know, some consternation. I said, No, United States. He's like, Oh, okay. Mind you, one thing you'll hear throughout our interview, anytime we talk about Seagal, I might come into the voice because it doesn't matter. Everybody on set ends up doing the voice at some point or another. It is <laughs> it is it is a thing that happens. And you, if you're on any of those sets, the voice will come out. You will hear the script super. You will hear the craft service person. You will hear the PA. Everybody will do the voice at some point or another. So fair warning, the voice will come out. But uh, that was my first introduction to him. And on that show, he barely even knew I existed. And you know, over the course of several productions, he got to know me a little bit better. He definitely has his ideas on his experiences and and I have my ideas on his experiences, and uh, they always match. I, you know, for him, it was a paycheck. I'll never say that, but it was a paycheck. We, we kept him employed. And throughout the process, my job was to, cut down, was to cut down his fee and to cut down his perks so that he'd make these movies because the, the value on his movies would go down movie after movie after movie because he would – he would call us up and he would say, I need to do another movie. And you're like, okay, let's go do another movie. But, you know, when you're, when you're putting you know, two, three, four movies of his into the market on the same year, same calendar year, the value goes down because the desire is not there. It's just pure, simple supply and demand. So these massive paychecks he used to get would dwindle. 
and we, we kept them as long. We kept them alive for a long time. I mean, I think, uh, I think my last film with him was probably about four years ago, maybe three. And, and that one I was barely involved with, but I was still part of the team. And, and the budget on that was about what he made on the first one that I worked with him on. So it was, it was you know, stark contrast. Well, he, I mean, let's face it. I mean, the, the guy, I mean, he seems like he has such an enigmatic personality and presence. And what, what I've discovered, I mean, in uh, watching various interviews and just, uh, you know, hearing various stories about Seagal, is it seems like everybody who has ever worked with him has a Steven Seagal story. And you've already kind of mentioned one, but considering that you've done almost 10 projects with him, are you at liberty to tell a Steven Seagal story? Oh, I've got tons of them that I can tell, tons of them that I can't tell. Okay. <laughs> um, I think I think I have to go back to one of my favorite ones, and um, uh, um, I did uh, I did his, uh, his 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 first and only scripted TV series. I did two seasons of it called True Justice, um, and and it was, that was a really difficult project to put together. I mean, the financing was very intricate and the budgets were very intricate and very tight. Um, you look at normal, normal uh, action TV shows and they have these, these massive budgets and, and we really, we really made magic when it came to how much action you could see on the screen with how much we had to work with. But the funny part was, is that while, while Stephen had a say in just about everything that we did, he didn't always remember the things that he wanted. Um, and when these, these movies slash TV shows were, were distributed, in some territories it was distributed as a TV show, in some territories it was distributed as a series of movies. So we shot them in, in almost a movie format, but we shot them on a, on a very tight schedule. So they were each movie or each two episodes was shot in a 14-day period, and uh, uh, which is super tight for any action project. But we had a healthy second unit, and and, uh, and we kept the stage a lot, which helped. So I remember we had just completed episode one and two, which is directed by Keone Waxman, and now we were moving into episode three and four, which is being directed by uh, Wayne Rose up in uh, Vancouver, Canada. And this was Wayne's first time working with Stephen, and he was having a tough time with it. Um, and uh, Keon and I were, were walking on set. We had just uh, walked back. We had just, just had dinner, probably a couple beers, and we were walking on set, and we hear this loud, booming voice. And the booming voice says, Elijah, Elijah, who the fuck is Elijah? And both Keanu and I look at each other and we're like, oh, what's going on here? Well, mind you, the character name for Steve in the series, his name was Elijah Kane. And he came up with that name, right? He came up with that name. Well, he works off of cue cards. And and so he walked out onto this third episode. So mind you, Marty shot two episodes, one movie. He walks out of the third episode, sees a different director, looks at the cue card, goes, who the fuck is Elijah? One of his handlers comes down and goes, uh, sir, sir, that's, that's you, sir. And he goes, well, that's a stupid fucking name. Who the fuck came up with that name? And then 
the handler walks back out and said, um, sir, I would, that, that, that would be you, sir. Um, and for the rest of season one, everybody walked around saying, who the fuck is Elijah? Uh, I, uh, in fact, the Griffs actually had T-shirts made. Because um, <laughs> he, just, he just wasn't involved. I mean, he was involved, but he wasn't involved. I mean, he was just... He's just kind of there doing his thing. And, and you have to understand, I mean, the guy's been doing, doing it for a long time. So he just kind of shows up, gives his lines and leaves. He, he doesn't want to be there. I don't think he even likes the process that much anymore. That's my opinion. That's an opinion. Uh, another story, um, I was working in New Mexico. Uh, it was the first shot. The first one we did in New Mexico was called The Keeper. And this was the first time I worked with the county as a director. And um, one, of the, one of the guys on Steven's team, um, one of the guys in Steve's team was like, ah, the, the stunt guys here in New Mexico are terrible. We need some better stunt guys. I'm like, well, we're just not budgeted for it. And I was holding the line. I wasn't going to spend more money on stunt guys because we were already spending money in other places we shouldn't be. He says, okay, fine. You know what? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to, I'm going to put the money in. I'm going to pay for it. And I'm going to bring the stunt guys in. So he brings the stunt guys in and, um, we're on this, this house, uh, north of Santa Fe, and, you know, Stephen walks in, Keone walks up, so he's looking, sir, so what we're going to do is we're going to do this, 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 and we're going to have this little scene here, and we're going to do this, this, and this, and the front corner comes in, and goes, okay, we're going to do this action, and this action, and Stephen's like, ah, oh, fuck that, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to shoot this guy over here, and shoot this guy over there, bookends, and all that money that his own team spent to get him people to fight with was just boom, out the window. And that's so difficult, that's so disheartening to hear, because I mean, let's face it, when you, when you think about Seagal, you think about the days of Out for Justice and March for Death where he would walk into a room and kick like 10 guys' asses all right there. And then you hear that he just says, yeah, I only want to do two guys here and then I'm done for the day. Like, it's like, oh, man, like, what happened? <laughs> I, and I couldn't answer that question, but I can tell you that, you know, in, in all the films I've done, you know, if, if Stephen would have just given – 10% more. I mean, just given 10% more, you know, all these films would have been a lot better. These, these films, these films, um, they all started with fairly decent scripts. Um, they weren't going to win any awards, but they were fairly decent scripts and they were, they were you know, decently written and, and the action was great. And if you watch some of these movies, you look at the action and, and it's dynamic for what it is. The problem is, is that he just doesn't want to do it. Now, I will give you this. I will give you this: that when he does show up and do his own action, it's dynamic. No one moves his hands like he does. You know, no one moves the way he does. Um, but you know, he just doesn't. He just doesn't show up and do it that much. So, when you're watching a Seagal movie, a lot of times the action is done by his doubles, and 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 you can tell. I, I don't think I'm burst in anybody's bubble by saying that. I, it's, it's pretty evident that when he's there and when he's not there. Well, I think your stories uh, could be some of the best ones that I've heard. I mean, because prior to speaking with you, my uh, my favorite story was one that uh, I'm sure you heard it, that Keenan Ivory Wayans told when he was on set of uh, Glimmer Man, how uh, between takes or whatever, Seagal came out of his uh, trailer and he said, I just read the greatest script ever. And when Keenan Ivory Wayans asked him, oh, yeah, who wrote it? Seagal said, I did. Like, <laughs> like, and I think it's stories like that that just kind of add to the enigma 
that, uh, that, that he carries. Well, you know, and I, I've heard tons of stories from other directors that have worked with him over the years. And, um, you know, again, you know, he is his own worst enemy, as most of us are, you know. I mean, but he truly is his own worst enemy. Um, I think the guy, uh, even if he, if he really wanted to, and I, I don't know, I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about things that he's done in the past, whether they're true or not. But I think if you really wanted to, if you just, you know, drop a few pounds and do some of his own action and actually care and show up, um, his movies would be a lot more dynamic. Um, but there's a formula, and we follow the formula and we tend to work, and they're still okay. I mean, I look at uh, I look at some of the, the 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 later Van Damme movies, and Van Damme has his own. I've never worked with Dan Dam directly, but I, I've, I've come really close to working on, on a few of his projects. Um, you know, he has his own issues about showing up and, and and whatnot. And but when he does show up, he's like active. I mean, granted, he throws a lot of wrenches into the works, um, but he he's there to work. Um, you know, I just don't think uh, Stevens hearts in it anymore. I think he does it out of necessity. Again, that's my opinion. Well, now, I mean, looking at your entire resume, which, like I said, is is, is very impressive. I mean, you, you have so many projects on there. Are there any films on uh, on your entire producing slate that that stand out to you and that you're particularly proud of? Um, you know, I did one with Val Kilmer. Uh, he was kind of a secondary character. It was Val Kilmer, Ray Liotta. Um, was it Gina Gershon? That no, wasn't Gina Gershon. Maybe it was Gina Gershon. I was breathless. Um, and I wasn't the producer on that, but I was a supervising producer on that. Um, it was a small film. Budget on that was probably maybe $700,000. But every actor came out to play it. And that's the funny thing about, like, say, Val Kilmer, is that um, Val Kilmer's like Mr. Method. But he's got to like the character. And when he shows up, oh man, he's magic. But when he when he doesn't show up and he just kind of phones it in, the, the funny thing about Val is that even when he phones it in, he's still got more talent than half of Hollywood out there. I mean, he's just he's, he's that good. But again, he's like super method. I'll tell you. So Breathless was one of those that I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed watching after the fact. Um, and. Um, I really enjoyed making the keeper. Uh, that was the first one I did with Keone, and uh, we had a lot of fun on that when we shot in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I think we brought a lot of great action to that one. Um, there were a lot of challenges, but I was pretty proud of that one. Um, and I'm super proud of True Justice, the series. I mean, when you when you when you realize exactly how much we had to make each of those episodes, we had we had one of the best. Uh, stunt coordinator, second lead directors, and um, who I've ever worked with, and that's uh, Laurel Chartrand. And he was fantastic, and he brought his all every single day. Keone brought his all. Wayne Rose brought his all. Everybody brought their all every single day, and um, and the rest of the cast that was surrounding Stephen, they just they were all fantastic. Um, I mean, I think I spent the better for the two seasons. It was like. Uh, six to eight months each season I spent up in D.C. And I'm just, 
I fell in love with the people on BC. I fell in love with every single crew member and watching those shows with what we had to work with. I was astonished at the level of quality that we got out of those things. So those were wins for me. It's, it, it's a win for me when you can look at it and go, I can't believe we made it look that good. You know, maybe the dialogue needed a little work. Maybe, and again, it's not the writer's fault necessarily. The dialogue didn't work. A lot of times, you know, things would get changed on set at the moment. There were times, I mean, I would, I would hate to be a director on a Steven Seagal film. Those guys get punished the most because sometimes Steven will come in and he'll do his dialogue and sometimes Steven will come in and go, all right, we got a page dialogue. He's like, nah, fuck that. I'm just going to say, yeah. So now the director's got to figure out how to shoot Steven out and then go back and change all the dialogue to the other characters to get the exposition out to make the story still work and still finish it within a, you know, a 12 hour day. It's a lot of work. You know, yeah. These guys who worked on these, on these movies are all pros and very few of them will ever get the recognition that they deserve. You, you see these guys getting big blockbusters and getting the awards and things like that, but they don't, they, well, I might be speaking out of turn, but some of those guys don't have the issues that you know, we had at this, at this level. Um, you, you have a lot of actors out there, and I'm not just talking about the CMO, but there are a lot of actors out there that, that just they take their paycheck and they show up and they do the absolute minimum that they can do just to get their paycheck and move on. And I understand that. You know, they're burnt out or whatever, and they don't want to be doing this you know, crappy little action movie. But for the rest of us, that crappy little action movie is our livelihood, and we're going to put everything into it. Um, and... Uh, he, there's no, there's no, there's no guide. There's no test to show taking something and how difficult it is to take it and make it into something that that can be watchable on screen. So yeah. all you get to see is you get to see the, the productions that may have had you know, two hundred million dollars. You know, I, I look at Titanic and nothing against James Cameron. I did not like the movie Titanic, um, but, but was it was it something? you know, interesting to watch. I mean, yeah, you get all this money on these sets, and these, these grandiose special effects and everything else, but the rest of it was meh to me. And, and, it, and it was easy. I mean, it wasn't easy because, you know, I, I guess they shut down several times to, to bring the budget back up again, but they had money to throw at the problems. When you're working at the independent level, you don't have the money to throw at the problem. When something happens on set, someone gets hurt or someone doesn't show up or, or, or anything like that. I've had, I've had shows where, you know, actors just didn't show up at all. They went out and partied the night before and just decided they weren't going to do the movie and just didn't show up. What, what are you going to do with your crew? What are you going to do with everything? It's just sitting there and, and, and you just hear this big sucking sound of money going down the drain because everybody's waiting. Steven never did that. Steven showed up late, but he never, he never, Steven would show up late, but he'd never, never boned us. You know, he, he, you know, he knew what he could get away with and what he couldn't get away with. But there are other actors that would just not show up. That was always the difficult part. Well, now, obviously, currently, things are, uh, well, it looks like productions in, in Hollywood are starting to open back up again. We kind of had that, uh, that shutdown due to, uh, due to COVID and everything. But um, are you at liberty to speak about anything that, uh, that you're currently working on or things that are currently uh, in the pipeline. Obviously you mentioned the projects uh, 
uh, with Brian Coyne, but is there definitely uh, things right now that are on the books? There's uh, yeah. Technically, there's nothing on the books for me. So I had about um, – so, you know, my, my partner over at Hollywood Media Bridge, uh, Phil and I have been together for a long time, but he's kind of doing his own thing, and I respect that. Um, his thing doesn't always – what he's doing now doesn't necessarily uh, doesn't necessarily need me anymore and my skill set. Um, so I've been looking because I, I can't just, like, sit back and do nothing. i got to use something. So – I've been reaching out to others to, to, to find you know, line producing gigs or producing gigs or, or supervising producer gigs. Um, and I was up for a couple of really fantastic projects. I can't mention what they are, but I was up for a really fantastic project prior to the pandemic shutdown. Um, one of them probably won't go, uh, for me anyway, because um, it's mostly European cast, mostly European people involved. And you know, in the news, Europe's not letting Americans in anytime soon. So that one's probably going to go away. Um, the others, I, I'm afraid for the film industry, um, you know, post COVID-19. I think that um, much like we, much like what we see in, in politics where, you know, the middle class continues to shrink, you know, over and over and again, there's these, these two poles, there's the uber rich and then there's the, you know, the, the poor that are, that are rising up the most. I, I see the same thing in film, and what I see is, and this is not a this is not a pro right or pro pro left. I'm, I'm actually neither. I just see that you know the greater disparity between the two, and I, I'm seeing that happen in film. With with the pandemic, there's these things called the white pages, and if you institute the white pages into production, you follow the guilds rules and the states rules and everybody else's rules. Um, you're looking at about a 15 to 20% increase in production cost. Well, in, in the independent film world, these production costs are pretty solid. You have, when you have Nicolas Cage on a movie, it's worth X. When you, you know, when, when you have, uh, you know, Steve Seagal, it's worth this. It's, when you have Dolph Lundgren, it's worth this. And they all have the number. Um, and you get those numbers and you try to figure out how to make a movie. Um, but with the pandemic increase in costs, what I see, I see you're going to get a lot more sub half million dollar movies that are done with financial core actors that do not have to adhere to SAG rules or non-SAG actors. And then I see studios and networks um, being able to produce movies because they can incur the costs. I, I hope I'm not right. But from what I see, the writings on the wall and these mid-level independent action movies are in trouble. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, things are able to write the, uh, you know, the the, the trajectory and the uh, the course is going to be righted. But yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. You know, as I was talking about this with a buddy the other day, what's really kind of wild. I mean, if you just look at the uh, at the landscape of Hollywood, it seems like nowadays there's really only two types of budgets. That are that movies are being made for. Obviously, you have the smaller ones for being ma- that are being made for 10 million and under. But then you have the the big, huge uh, blockbuster ones, you know, put out by Disney and Marvel and whatnot that are you know feels like they're made for like a billion. But what you just don't see anymore are the the mid level ones, the ones between 30 to 40 million. You just really don't see those productions anymore. So yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting when uh, when things open up again 
what we're uh, what we're looking at. Oh, without a doubt, and and, and it's too bad because I I, I think it's um, I think it's that independent film nature that 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 pushes the studios out of their comfort zone. Otherwise, they're just going to serve up what they think that we want, and we're going to lose that lose that dynamic, and that's to me is a, is a bummer. But we'll see. I mean, uh, you know, maybe two or three years from now, things will settle down a little bit and people start doing it again because they're not going to have to have all the rules implied that they had before. One good thing I will say that I hope comes out of this, I think that far too long in the film industry, and I've been doing this for 22 years now, I think that uh, we push our crew to the edge every single day. And I, I really don't think it's right. And, 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 and while I am complicit in the budgeting and, and have to factor in you know, what's done, I don't like it necessarily. I don't like the fact that you, you're working a 12, 13, 14, 16-hour day. You know, um, some, some of the best guys, some of the best paid guys in my set are my transport guys. And people, you know, make jokes about them because, oh, well, they don't do anything during the day. They just sit around. But their hours are so long. So people talk about a 12-hour day on a film set. Well, what you don't hear about is that you know, Transpo came in two hours earlier to set all the vehicles up, the trailers and everything else up, and then they're stuck hanging around while everybody's doing the work, but still doing runs and whatnot throughout the day, cleaning and, and the other things that they have to do. Then they have to move locations after that. So their day is a 16, 18-hour day while everybody else is working a 12-hour day. Yeah. One of the reasons why they make good money is because they're paid for it. But that's just too much for people, you know. Uh, and I understand how the 12-hour day works. They, the 12-hour day is set up so that the actors would get a full eight hours of work a day. So everybody gets, gets pushed to their limit because you only have eight hours a day with the actors. I, I think that needs to change. You know, I, I think it's too much. I think, it, you know, you take care of your crew and you take care and you, a well-rested crew gives you better production in my opinion. Um, and I'm hoping that um, now with all the, all the necessity to clean, sterilize, and everything else, that maybe we might shorten some of these hours and maybe we lengthen the production times a little bit and recognize that, gosh, we do get a better product when we give people adequate sleep at night and let them you know, have a little bit of time off and rest in between. You know, people don't think about the fact that when... When everybody's gone home, grips and tricks are picking up cable and, and, and everything. The prop guys are putting their stuff away. You know, the wardrobe department is, is doing laundry every single night. You know, these are things nobody thinks about. You know, these, these 14-hour days for these people, that's hard on a person, especially when you're working on an independent level. Maybe you're only doing three, four, five, six weeks on a production. But when you're on, you know, on, on a bigger show, you're working months and months at a time working those hours. It takes a toll on you. And maybe I'm saying that because I'm, you know, 50 years old now. I don't like putting those kinds of hours in anymore. But um, it, it's it's tough on a crew. Well, this has been uh, seriously. This has been uh, an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. I mean, not just uh, not just getting to meet a, a fellow fan of uh, a lot of these these big action guys but uh yeah thank you for for taking me through the the inner workings of this business and uh like i said it's been a pleasure and i i wish you nothing but the best of luck uh with everything uh 
in 2020 and beyond. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed doing this. I don't get you know I don't get to talk a lot. You know, people don't want me to say the uh, the things that, that people don't want to hear. But uh, I really appreciate you giving me the forum to talk about some of these things and and my points of view. And um, and uh, thank you for having me on board.